Welcome to Authors on Tour Live, a weekly podcast for people who love to hear about books from the authors themselves. My name is Darren Fote, and today we are podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore, one of the premier independent bookstores in the nation, with three locations in the metro Denver area. You can visit www.authorsontourlive.com for a complete list of upcoming podcasts. Wait a minute, it's time to begin. Tonight we are joined by journalist Amy Heimerl and the editor of Westward, Patty Calhoun, who will be speaking about and signing Amy's new book, Detroit Hustle, a memoir of love, life, and home. Three years ago, Heimerl and her husband were priced out of their Brooklyn neighborhood, but chose to see those unfortunate circumstances as opportunity for a fresh start. They decided to cash in their savings and buy an abandoned house for $35,000 in Detroit, the largest city in the United States to declare bankruptcy. Her new work is both a meditation on what it takes to make a house a home, as well as a love letter to a much derided city. Um, in addition to her new memoir, Heimerl has a unique knack for covering small businesses in sprawling urban environments and examining differences between urban renewal and rural poverty. Uh, we are honored to have such renowned speakers with us tonight. So now with please, without further ado, join me in welcoming Amy Heimerl and Patty Calhoun. Well... I can't let that stand because we have the great and powerful Patty Calhoun here who was my editor when I worked at Westward and is maybe, I think, the most powerful woman in Denver and certainly one of the most powerful people in my life as a journalist. So it was humbling to me when Patty agreed to do this with me here tonight because she's had such a deep effect on who I am as a reporter and a person. So thank you, Patty. So we need to give lots of thanks to Patty Calhoun. I'm just here really to edit the conversation as we go because we all want to hear Amy's story. If you haven't read this book, read it. You'll love it. I loved it. I had to fight my mom for it on a Christmas trip when we had an early advance copy because my mom is one of the few people in this room, I'm guessing, who has seen Amy's house. Uh, my mom, who's a native of Detroit, so knew everything that Amy was talking about and she took her high school class over to visit. Anyway... Many of you know Amy. It has been a duller Denver since she left town. I think that's a lie. I've seen all the new like, construction. Like, I like, can't... Well, we're not saying the new construction <laughs> is great. Uh, that's true. I think yeah. I said that in Westward, actually. Yeah. But it has been a duller town. Amy has a great ability to find just every single thing that's cool and special, whether it's old or new, going on in a city. And so she covered that when she was in Denver, and then when she went off to New York for, to seek fame and fortune, who knew that she would find fame, if not fortune, in Detroit, of all places. So her story of writing, of working in Detroit, learning to love Detroit, and learning to love Matilda the house is just an incredible saga, which she'll be telling you tonight. Um, it, please interrupt at any point with questions. I will ask Amy questions if you aren't, but you will. And so, welcome, Amy. I'm just going to ask you a couple questions okay. first, which is, I know serendipity plays a huge part in this story, so you found a house that was owned by people from Boulder. In the front row, let's say hello oh, to wow. Alice and Fatima in the house. Stars. So I'm just interested in how much serendipity has played a role in your life, because look at all the things you've done and how it led you to Matilda. So I think serendipity has played 
a pretty huge role in my life because honestly, what girl growing up in a trailer in Fruta, Colorado actually ever finds herself at the top of the media heap in New York City writing for the New York Times, Fortune Small Business, and then winds up in Detroit rehabbing a house and as a book author. I used to go to the library in Fruta, Colorado every week. It was a big deal the Christmas um, that my mother gave me a a library card because that was all we could afford for Christmas that year and promised me that she would take me to the library every every week. And so going to that library and reading through the books until the point in time when the librarian there said, you've read all of the YA, you've read all of the children's books, I'm going to start bringing in books for, for you from Denver. That's all serendipity to have met that librarian at the right time. It was serendipity to meet my first mentor, Donna Ladd, when I was in college, who would open up all the kinds of doors to me. It was serendipity to me to meet Patty Calhoun at a time in my life that gave me the opportunity to become the kind of journalist I am. It's become serendipity to have met the women of Detroit who helped me put this life together. Serendipity to come across Allison and Fatima who would sell me this house. It's been serendipity my entire life to meet the kind of powerful, important women who would open doors for me. And I am, I am blessed. And one of the things that I keep talking about that you might not expect, because how many here have heard about Detroit, right? It's a shithole. Like Detroit, like ruined porn, like it's falling apart. Like that's what you know, right? Let me tell you about the Detroit I know and the women of Detroit who are the most empathetic, passionate, empowered women I've ever met. They have kept that city going when everything was falling apart. And for them and for me to serendipitously be brought into that circle of of strength and power and sort of demand for better for themselves in the city is just it's just humbling and patty is sort of part of that lineage to have been blessed with this you know just straight line of women in my life so (laughs) so how much did seren i know serendipity played a role in you finding matilda yes who wasn't named matilda at the time but tell us about finding the house sure so right so just for those of you who don't know the house is named matilda my husband named it that um when we bought it after the tom Waits song waltzing matilda because he saw this house like the character in that song as this uh you know old beauty with great bones that just had had a rough past and could have a great future so in finding the house Carl and I originally moved from Brooklyn, New York, to Michigan for the uh, a fellowship I received at the University of Michigan. So go blue, except that now I'm a professor at Michigan State. So go green. I've said, I, go Spartans. I've said all the right things. I think all of my alma maters are now happy. Uh, except whatever you say for Metro State, go Roadrunners. Um, so we moved there, and at the end of our time at the fellowship, after nine months, we started thinking about what did we want from our life? We got married just before we moved to Michigan for the fellowship. Hurricane Sandy slammed into the East Coast and devastated our our neighborhood of Red Hook, Brooklyn. So many of our friends and family were still displaced from their homes. Friends of ours were trapped in 10-floor walk-ups, unable to get medicine for months. It was unimaginable that this would happen. And Carl and I had to think about, could we go back there, knowing that it's in a flood zone, it could happen any other time again, with pianos and dogs and $3,500 a month in rent? 
or did we want to think about a life in a different place? And so we started looking at Brooklyn. We, or sorry, we started looking at Detroit. We started looking at Oakland, California. And I was actually, I will admit, initially, I wanted to do Oakland. I was like, there's sunshine and good tacos and like dog parks. This seems like land of milk and honey. I cannot lie. And Detroit was, you know, everything you've heard. And it was, I didn't know it well enough yet to know what I didn't know. I'd seen blight, I'd seen devastation, I'd seen poverty. And while that can be attractive back in Brooklyn in my neighborhood of Red Hook, that can look attractive in one square mile of cobblestone streets. It looks very different in 139 square miles as you figure out how you're going to make a life and a home in that. But we, you know, we, we went to Oakland and... I'm standing outside, and I'm smoking a cigarette. Sorry, Mom, I was smoking then. It's been two and a half years since I've smoked. My mother's in the audience, so I have to, <laughs> have to own this. Um, we're standing outside. Carl's in the bar. I'm smoking, trying to think, what am I going to do? What, what's the answer here? Am I going to take this job in Oakland? Because it was the editor-in-chief of my own paper. Or I'm going to take the job in Detroit, where it was like, you know, a number three editor, just a reporter, same salary, so not even one outweighing the other. And these guys start kind of coming up on me. There's like four of them. And they're rolling up. And I'm strong enough. Like, I'm missing this knuckle from a bar fight. Like, I got myself. I'm not, I'm not worried. But they're, they're getting a little close. And they're like, hey, you know, don't you know it's dangerous out here? What are you doing out here? And they're, you know, they're being a little aggressive. And the first things out of my, lo- my mouth were... I'm from Detroit. I got this. So if you pull on the street cred of a place you don't even live in yet, you probably better move there right quick. So we decided on Detroit, but we didn't know the house yet. So we're looking around. I accept the job at Crane's Detroit Business, where I became their entrepreneurship editor. So I was in charge of covering small business, entrepreneurship, all the sort of great new things happening in Detroit. And then the city declares bankruptcy, so I'm also in charge of covering the you know, city's you know, bankruptcy. The great thing about journalism is we get to become experts on anything also right quick. So we're looking, and I'm, I'm at a couple of meetings, and this woman comes up to me and says, Hey, Amy, I hear you're looking for a house. I'm April Boyle. Hello, April Boyle. Uh, yes, we are thinking about moving here, and we are sort of looking for a house. She's like, well, my, uh, my brother-in-law has one across the street from him. It's not on the market yet, but I think if you call him, he can put you in touch with the sellers. Okay. We looked at a couple of houses before that, and they were all really big projects, like seriously big projects. No heating, no plumbing, no electrical, needed new roof, maybe needed a new wall. Like, they were wrecks. And we were like, no, no. That's not what we're looking for. We want something where we could just, like, rehab the kitchen, maybe change the paint color. That doesn't exist so much in Detroit. Let's, let's just be clear, especially in 2012. Um, and so I get the phone number, and Jim Boyle says, you should get a hold of Allison and Fatima, who are sitting right here. We've never met until tonight, except we've Skyped a lot. Um, And so I'm too afraid to call because even though I'm a journalist, I really hate telephones. If you make my phone ring, it makes me very angry because then I have to talk to you on your time and not my time. So email and text people, email and texts. Um, But I can't get a hold of you without calling you. So I find you on Facebook and I pay $1 to Facebook to make my message to you go into the Facebook inbox that you actually see as opposed to the Facebook inbox of like death and maiming and hell that like nobody sees. And you respond to me and within an hour, you and I are chatting on the phone about this house in the West Village of Detroit and that there are keys in a lockbox and my husband and I should go and see it. 
And so we do. And we walk in, and it is a house with no plumbing and no electrical and no heating and like a south wall that needs to be replaced. It's everything we didn't want, right? Everything we didn't want. We can barely see it because it's all boarded up. So we've got like iPhones out and we're, we're like, you know, shining them around. There's dust motes, you know, we can see in the, the various cracks from the sunlight. This is not a house that anybody buys except us. And it wasn't the house. The house had its bones. The house spoke to us. My husband will tell you that he knew this was the house for us in the same way he knew I was the wife for him. Sometimes you just fall. For me, it was about Jim Boyle, who I talked to on the phone and gave me the, the contact information. This whole serendipitous connection. We come outside after looking at this house, and like one of us should have looked at each other and been like, not a chance. Like somebody should have been the grown up here, and neither of us were. And Jim Boyle, who we don't know, comes walking across the street. And it's like, hi, I'm Jim Boyle. And you guys will never meet Jim Boyle, but just trust me that Jim Boyle is very friendly, and he is like the king of the neighborhood. And he says, What's your intention? So, uh, and so, the, but the in, intonation is very much that there's only one answer, right? So Carl and I kind of look at each other and we're like, our intent is to, we're going to buy this house and rehab it. This is going to be our home. And Jim wanted somebody like us to buy and rehab this house because the house had sat empty for a decade, roughly, with either tenants in it that didn't take care of it or squatters or nobody and fallen into disrepair as the neighbors were forced to mow the lawns, board it up, do everything to keep their block from becoming one of those blighted blocks of Detroit. They couldn't do it any longer. They needed help. And they saw the great big S on my forehead for sucker. And we're like, you will do. And we were. And so we spent a couple of weeks waffling and you know, trying to decide, because who buys a $35,000 house in Detroit, the murder capital of America, where you have no family, and you don't even know where the house is? Like, I could tell you that it was in the West Village, but I had no idea where the West Village was. But then we did, and it was all serendipity. It was all sort of the connections that come together through Detroit and through my life that have brought me here. And I actually have Detroiters in the house right now. So Lisa and Tony flew here from Detroit. Thank you. Hello, Detroiters. So you guys can, you can tell them if I'm making up stories about Detroit, and they can tell you if I'm making up stories about Denver. See how this fact-checking works? For those who haven't read the book and you know you are all going to, um, tell, talk a little bit about the neighborhood, what you found out about West Village. You know, Denver just surpassed Detroit in population, but Denver is never going to surpass Detroit in the history of that town. I mean, an amazing history. So give us some background on what had happened in the West Village sure. leading up to Matilda. Sure. So one of the things, you know, just to put it in context, one of the things that they say a lot in Detroit is that we're never going to be great again until we can grow. Because Detroit went from a population of 1.8 million in 1950 to now 700,000, and that we are too big. At 139 square miles, you can fit San Francisco, Boston, and Manhattan into us. Guess where else you can fit San Francisco, Boston, and Manhattan into? Denver people. Hi, Denver's 132 square miles for just over 650,000 people. Detroit is 700,000 people for 139 square miles. It is very possible to have a successful city at that size if you do good economic development and growth, which is something Detroit has not managed to do in quite a long time. Part of it was because we were an auto industry town. And as auto industry changed, the city was not able to keep up. So Detroit is trying to figure out how it takes 
all of the amazing talent of Detroit that we've learned, because right, we have more engineers per capita than anywhere in the country. That's Detroit. You know what else we have? We have designers. We have more designers than anywhere else in the country, because guess what? Who has to design things? Automakers. We have to design seats. We have to design consoles. We have to design everything. So we kind of kick ass in like make it, build it, ship it. That's what Detroit does, and we will continue to do it in different ways. But we lost our way. You know, the economics, we cannot underestimate race, class, gentrification, all of the issues that are coming to play in Detroit. And they all sort of segue right in the West Village, where I live. So the West Village is a 10-block neighborhood about three miles to the east of downtown. So think of it like Capitol Hill. So that's sort of putting it in context. Or any one of sort of the inner ring neighborhoods of Denver that are right outside of downtown. It's a neighborhood that was put on the register, the National Register of Historic Places in 1980, and it was a huge thing. So when I talk about women, this goes back to the women. After the riots of 1967, 68, and now I'm getting 67, I'm right. So I always think 67 and then go, oh gosh, was it 68? So which weren't actually riots, they were, they were a rebellion. So let's just call it what it was, that was a rebellion. Um, People started, you know, didn't start fleeing then, don't fall into that sort of history. People started leaving in the 1950s to follow good auto manufacturing jobs. But after, after the rebellion of 67, our neighborhood started emptying out even further. Some of the neighbors stayed. Nona Herzog was one of the neighbors who stayed. Mark and Kathy Belter, who I still know and are my neighbors now, stayed. A lot of neighbors stayed to keep this neighborhood solid, and they did the work of preventing the city, which was very much in the throes of urban renewal, from tearing everything down the way that they did in Denver in the 70s and 80s as well. We have the Molly Brown House, but think about all of the structures that were around the Molly Brown House that got taken down for parking lots as part of urban renewal as it swept the country. Detroit lost a lot of that, and my neighbor said, that's not going to happen in the West Village. And they got our neighborhood put on the National Register of Historic Places. The Secretary of the Navy used to live in our neighborhood. We, are, we share one block with Indian Village, which is where all of the high-dollar, like, 10,000-square-foot homes are with garages for the automakers and the manufacturing scions. This was where the money is. And never forget, when you want to talk about where money is in this country, the most wealthy counties, they are right outside Detroit. They, like, we know what money is, people. We knew in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s how to throw cash around. We have got all of the architecture to show you when one, you know, sort of bank owner or one manufacturer wanted to sort of have a pissing contest over who had more money because we could put up a building. And we've got those to show it. And then we started falling apart. We started tearing things down. And the women of my neighborhood made sure that the West Village didn't come apart. So even though we had houses that had been abandoned, that people left them because as things got tough, whether that was in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the foreclosure crisis that we just went through, people made individual choices and did best that they could. They still did everything to keep this neighborhood solid. And so when we move in, we are the last house on this beautiful tree-lined block in Detroit, one block off the river, right near Belle Isle, and we are the last house, and our neighbors are excited for us to take it on and to rehab it and to sort of keep the lineage of the women and the people who believed in this neighborhood and who believed in Detroit. And that's what's really been important to me. Nona and Arthur Herzog were the owners of my house. 
about Nona left in the early 2000s. So Nona Herzog was a red-haired, flaming-haired beauty. She modeled, you know, she, she modeled, she attended the Sorbonne, she was from London, and she came here after the Second World War, landed in Detroit, and she bought this house with her first husband that we now live in. And when he passed, he then mar- she then marries Arthur Herzog Jr. So there's Jr. and then his son, the third. And one of them had six wives and one of them had four wives. And I can never remember who had six and who had four wives because it's just a lot of wives. Um, but so he marries Nona. And Arthur wrote for Billie Holiday. He wrote God Bless the Child. So we've got this great lineage in this house of like Nona working to make sure we're put on the National Register of Historic Places and Arthur who was writing for Billie Holiday and friends with Nina Simone and bringing all of the musical greats of jazz and Motown and the theater through our house. In fact, he has a book. So he had the script typewriter, right? So when you would type, it would actually type in script and for Every dinner party he would throw, and he threw them often. And I know this because all of my neighbors have told me the story, and I've had the chance to talk to his son about this. He would type up the guest list, and then he would type up the menu, and he put them in books. And those books all still exist at his daughter-in-law, either like 7th, ninth, I don't even know which one, on Long Island. And they've invited me to come out and see them, and maybe one day have them and return them to Matilda, return them to our house, that history of everybody who's ever been through it. So this house is incredibly powerful. It's not just a house, right? It's, it's a home. It's a lineage to Detroit. It's a lineage to our history. It's a look at what we've gone through, not just one house, but as a people. It's a look at what Detroit has struggled with from white flight to the rebellion to the years after to who stayed and who had to leave. And let me talk to you about the people who stayed. White flight was something that happened in cities all across this nation. It wasn't, it was part of Denver's history. It was part of Detroit's history. It was part of New York's history as we abandoned cities. We abandoned cities because there were better jobs. We abandoned cities for education. We abandoned cities because we all had to make many choices that were right for us and our families. But there are still those either who couldn't leave or who chose not to leave. And my neighborhood is filled with those people who chose not to leave. There is an African-American middle class, because let's not forget, whatever the story and the similarities of Denver and Detroit are, we're similar size, we're similar population now, Denver is feeling the strain of newcomers as we figure out how do new people arrive and sort of integrate culturally with those of us who are fifth generation native, those who created this place people wanted to live in, and yet we want them. Detroit is feeling that too as people like my husband and I come in, but now add in the complication of being an 80% African American city, and the only thing anybody wants to talk about, including myself, is how a young middle class couple comes to Detroit who's white, and we get the stories told about us. How do you, so part of this book, I cannot lie, is about sort of grappling with that, is about grappling with where Detroit is, where Detroit's going, how we address race and class and privilege, how we address assumptions, how I, as a poor girl, growing up in Fruta, Colorado, and then Golden, Colorado, sort of went from becoming the first in my family to go to college, to sort of being middle class enough to take on a house like this, put together the cash to rehab it. I'm the American dream, except that we don't necessarily trust the American dream anymore because it comes with entitlement and privilege in a place like Detroit where it's privileged just to have a job. 
I have a job, people, and that makes me privileged in Detroit. And I never forget that because I have to watch as my neighbors can't pay their water bill. I have to watch as 40% of my neighbors live in poverty. And so I have to be able to take what I'm able to do and my husband and I are able to do about rehabbing this house and think about that and say, what are we doing on the grander scale to make sure that this is feasible for more people? How are we making sure that the economic opportunities are there, not just for newcomers like myself, but ensuring that we do something like Denver, which is making sure there are jobs, training, education available for the people who are there so they can, we can build the middle class in the city that built the middle class. Detroit built the middle class. We have to be able to have those opportunities there, and that, again, comes with job training. One of the things I'm really excited about is, again, the design. In the last five years, the Detroit Creative Corridor Center, which is a sort of design-focused incubator, has managed to create 2,000 new jobs and more than 50 new companies, half of which are African-American-owned. In a city that's 80% African-American, we celebrate and have to remember those that are African-American-owned because the New York Times, and I write for the New York Times, my best friend is a you know, small business reporter for the New York Times, often comes to our city and tells the story of our city and every single one of the people that are shown are white. And it's not because there aren't new African-American-owned businesses, new African-American-owned restaurants. It's not that they aren't there. It's that they aren't seen. And so part of my book talks about the invisibility of those who were there as new people come in. And while that might not be about black and white here, the issue of invisibility is still here. As friends of mine here who have grown up here, who have lived here in Denver, feel invisible as new people arrive, how do we make sure as newcomers, how do, as I, say in a, I said in an essay, leaving New York, how do I go from being a New Yorker to a new anything else? Gentrification isn't just about, like, let's say hi and be nice. So that's possible, you know, that's positive, you know, part of it. It's also about the policy levers we pull, the journalism we do, how we document our cities. And that's incredibly important to me. And I document that in this book. Uh, for good, for bad, I once had, I've recently had a critic say my book is so boring, she wants to poke her eyeballs out. So you may want to poke your eyeballs out. I don't deny, like, I'll own that. Like, go ahead and poke them out. <laughs> So, I mean, that's sort of serendipity, West Village, Detroit, all in one place. Detroit's growing. Things are happening. It's happening in downtown and midtown, which we would call the seven, it's like a 7.2 square mile bubble around downtown. Streetlights were on. There's, there are construction cranes flying. There's great opportunity. How we make sure that opportunity goes to the other 130 square miles is what we're figuring out. And the opportunity. How do we do it and make sure those that are there aren't pushed out, that they feel welcomed, that they are a part of, not a consequence of revitalization? And that is something Detroit's figuring out how to answer. We don't have the answers, but it is one of the opportunities that, that we have and sort of Denver's grappling with as well. So it's why I think as Detroit figures out how to do public transportation, because we basically have none, to the point where our bus system actually can stop at suburban lines. And they're like, no, no, we don't want those buses. So you, you might have heard the story of the, the walking man last year. It took him 20, he had to walk 26 miles to work because the buses wouldn't all intersect together. We're working on solving that. It's going to be on the ballot this year to actually do a regional transportation uh, millage, which I think is a huge start. But how do we get to what Denver's creating with public transportation, the opportunities that come without taking the negatives of sort of cheap construction, 
uh, you know, rapid construction and do it sort of smart and thoughtfully. Can that be done? I don't know. But I think Detroit at least is having these conversations on the tip of everybody's tongue. Like in Detroit, you go to the grocery store and you're going to have this conversation standing in line. Nobody's talking about the Rockies. Well, that's not true. We're talking about the Tigers because go Tigers. Sorry, Rocks. Um, you know, but this is a conversation that everybody's having everywhere in, in Detroit. You can't get away from it. It's exhausting. But it's also, I think, maybe part of what could be successful is sort of making sure we're conscious of it all the time. And that was a ramble. It's good. We like rambles. Okay, I was, I was going to get into the differences and the similarities between Denver and Detroit, but we'll come back to it. You have to love a fifth-generation Coloradan so embracing Detroit that it's all we know. And it would be nice if we heard that in the native versus newcomer state of Colorado. But I'm going to return to the personal. Um, and you, of course, are going to read her book, so I am giving away this little part. But Amy, as you can see, does not lack for energy and passion. But you had to give up a house here in Colorado. Yes. And I'm interested in, was there ever a point you and Carl thought you might have to do the same in Detroit? And if you had to do it over again, knowing how much money and time and sweat you'd put in Mm -hmm. and how much heart, would you have done it? So... Right, so the history is my ex and I actually owned a house here at 36th and Gilpin. Some of you know him, some of you don't. Um, And that was a a difficult period and a difficult relationship to end. Um, And part of the hard thing about memoir is needing to tell your story and the relevant stories to what you're getting at and not all of the stories and not make it about airing your dirty laundry. So I had to talk about my ex because I couldn't talk about renovate, buying and renovating a house in Detroit without talking about losing a house in Denver to foreclosure. It's the middle of the foreclosure crisis, you know, a bad divorce, things going on. This is the only way to get out of it. And part of the you know, section of the book talks about that and feeling branded by the F, right? I can never, should never, deserve to never own again, right? Because I, I messed it up the first time. We were smart. We did everything right. Job changes, you know, whatever. I have to talk about that and try to do it in a way that honors what that was without needing to air the dirty laundry of my relationship. Um, I meet Carl in New York. We get married. I never expect my new husband to want to own a house because he was somebody who loved apartment living. He loved city living. But once we get to Michigan, he starts talking to me about how important it is to him to own a house, how important it is to him to want to live in a place where he can put down roots. These are not things I expected. Um, And I want to give that to him despite my history here. I don't want my bad choices to prevent my husband from having the things that are right and relevant to him. So we go ahead and we buy this house, you know, even though I know that I'm going to be doing a full-on renovation again, and I'd basically sworn that off because the house in Denver was supposed to be a cosmetic renovation and turned into the next thing I know, sledgehammers through walls uh, kind of renovation with, like, grand plans. Um, so we buy the house in – Carl and I buy the house in Detroit for 35000 We think we're going to need to put 150 in basically knowing it'll be a $300,000 project over a span of time, but 150 sort of up front, you know, early on to get it habitable. The project winds up costing us 400000 And so 
that's a really difficult thing. Again, in a city with 40% poverty, where we have per capita income of less than 25000 here's my husband and I spending $400,000 renovating a house in Detroit. Now, if anybody told you they spent $400,000 renovating a house in Denver, you probably wouldn't you know, bat an eye. Right? Or you bought a new house. An upper middle class couple went and bought a new house and they spent $400,000. you would be like, ah, that might be a little bit much, but nobody's you know, batting an eye at that, right? Um, it's a tough thing to know that, but it also speaks to any kind of sort of struggle with that speaks to the perception we have of Detroit, which is that Detroit is not worthy of investment. And it is. It's worthy of investment by so many different kinds of people. Not everybody's going to have to put in the kind of money Carl and I did. But we bought a 300,000, sorry, 3,000 square feet, not 300,000, good Lord. Um, that would be a lot of cars to put in, like, desks. Um, we bought a 3,000 square foot house in a historic district that needed to be completely rebuilt within three walls. And I did not do, I did not do a Home Depot special. My mother and father owned an excavating company. They raised me to do it right, and you do it right the first time, and you rebuild it for another 100 years. Because if you don't, it's just going to cost you more in the long run. So do it right the first time. Fair quality, good price, but you don't go for the cheapest. You do it right. That's how I was raised in the trades. So as Carl and I are looking at rehabbing this house, we're looking at doing a historic restoration. It's in a historic district. So in a historic district, you don't just go get cheap vinyl windows. You have to go get historic district-approved windows. You have to do it right. Still, the cost of renovations are pretty much the same across the country, plus or minus 10%. If you need to put in plumbing, and I mean every stick of plumbing, and you need to open up the walls to do that, and you need to put in a boiler, and then you need to put in the, heat, you know, the heating system, and you need to put in windows, and oh, by the way, there needs to be a roof, and oh, by the way, your south wall is collapsing, that costs pretty much the same here as it does in Detroit. All that to say... The New York Times wrote a story about my husband and I and spending $400,000 on this and feeling like it was crazy because the house is only worth $300,000. So did we make a mistake? No. We're not in Detroit to flip it. We're not in Detroit as investors. We're not in Detroit to move on. This is our home, and in your home you invest. It doesn't matter if we're underwater on it. What matters is, is my cash flow better than it was in New York? And yes, I have lower cost of living and higher cash flow left over, so I'm still net positive on my, if you just want to look at the financials. If you want to look at the emotional side of homeownership, I own a house in an amazing city surrounded by beautiful other homes, great neighbors, and a community I love and I could never imagine leaving. I'm for the win. I put $400,000 into a house in a neighborhood and a place I love. At no point did we ever think we had made a mistake. Um except the time when Carl was trying to pick out really bad tile. And I like had to, you know, we went to the bar afterward and we'd been in the suburbs and I don't like the suburbs as everybody knows. You probably all of you know, I'm rural, I'm urban, but the suburbs are just like this middle. I can't even understand. Don't even like it. Um, and we were in the depths of the suburbs looking at tile and like tile warehouses and we get to the bar afterward, and we're like, okay, we're back in New York. We're back in, we're back in Detroit. We've crossed eight mile. We're back to safety. And we walk into the bar, and Carl says, well, I think I want this tile. And I looked at him, and I took off my wedding rings, and I slammed him on the bar. And I was like, if you want that tile, I just don't think we can be married. And walked out. 
Thankfully, Carl also knows that I can be a little overdramatic and like sat there and waited for me to come back in and was like, are you done now? And I was like, I think so. He was like, so how about a different kind of tile? And I was like, I think so. I think we can do that. So we didn't really have any regrets, but that doesn't mean that there weren't difficult situations that at least we found humor in. Um, we did cash out our, both of our 401ks which confuses people um, to do this. But the initial idea was, right, we're going to cash out our 401ks. That'll give us more than enough money to rehab this house, and we're going to be a middle-class couple living in Detroit with no mortgage. And, like, while our friends in Brooklyn are, you know, drowning under $3,000 a month rent. Did not work out that way. We have a mortgage. But it didn't bother me to cash out my 401k either because I didn't grow up in a family that had 401ks. I didn't grow up in a family that knew what it was to have that kind of security. Our security was maybe one day dad and mom would sell the business. Instead, dad and mom divorced. And I have to deal with that in my book because it's happening just as I'm having to write all this. And I'm going through everything and figuring out what home means as my home is disintegrating back in Colorado. And that's part of the book. My mother's crying here. I'm going to cry here. I laugh at her for all the crying, but then all my friends tell me I cry all the time too, so I really can't judge my mother for all the crying. Um, But I didn't grow up in a place where you got a paycheck every two weeks and you made sure you put your money into your 401k. I grew up in a place where you hustle. And there's a reason why this book is called Detroit Hustle, and it's because my dad always told me, kids, you got to hustle. Hustle harder than anyone else. And so what I know is not 401ks. I know what it means to hustle. And so if I have to sell off my 401k for this dream, I do it because I will hustle harder than anyone else to make the future right. We would love to have questions from the audience, if any have any now, because otherwise I have plenty, or Amy and I will just start talking about all the writers who gave us hell at Westward. Oh, sir. (laughs) Yes, Mr. Calhoun. Mr. Calhoun. Sure. So the question is, in my book, I talk a lot about the difficulties of getting financing for homes in Detroit. So last year, less than 10% of homes sold had mortgages. Anybody want to guess why? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Something every Detroiter knows. So it's not, most people assume that you can't get a mortgage on a house in Detroit because the people just must not be credit worthy. And that's just some BS, my friends. Like, less than 20% of, of buyers are turned away in Detroit for credit issues. Most of it is the fact that the homes won't appraise. So when your houses have been selling for so low, for so long because of the foreclosure crisis, the banks are like, so you bought a house for 30 And A, we don't really do loans for less than 50 because it's not worth our time. Um, But even if we did, we're going to write you a loan for a house and and give you money to rehab it when it's going to be worth less than the cost of investment when you're done? When we started looking, and I, I, thought we, like, I thought we'd be able to get some kind of construction loan or something, right? Like, here's a middle-class couple. I've cashed out our 401ks. I'm coming to the table with 100 grand. In my life, I was like, I am rich. I have never seen this kind of cash before. Like, thank God my husband knew how to save because I didn't. And like, woo, we're rich. And the banks were like, do you have dancing monkeys? And I was like, I have no dancing monkeys. They were like, because you're going to need something like that or unicorns to make this deal happen. Because we have a 3,000-square-foot box that we paid 35000 for. 
we think we need 150 to 200,000 to rehab it. And they're like, well, maybe with those dancing monkeys, it'll be worth 100. You can't fault the banks for saying no in a lot of ways, right? Because if they write enough of those loans and then they all go bad, everybody looks at them and says, how dare you write loans for that? Even though what we all need is the ability to rehab these houses, be able to get them done, start putting up the property price, you know, property values again so that more people can be able to get loans to be able to do this. It's a chicken and the egg situation. My neighbors who have been in the West Village since some, again, since the 60s, since the 70s, since the 80s, since the 90s, their houses have been sitting underwater for decades. They've been stuck, so if they needed to send a kid to college or put a mother or a father or somebody in some kind of senior living, they don't have access to the resource that most Americans use as a piggy bank. Most Americans use their house as their investment savings, as their piggy bank. Detroiters didn't have that, not for anything that they'd done wrong, merely because everything had fallen so low, and the banks won't lend. So for Carl and I, we had to put it together in cash. And yes, so I've, you know, I can take the criticism that, yeah, we're a middle-class couple that for the first time in my life, I had access to capital because, right, my husband managed to save, my parents divorced, and my father was willing to give me his portion of the divorce settlement, and my grandparents and my aunts were kind enough to give me a loan. And Carl's parents were kind enough to give us the money for the appliances for the house. I'm sorry, I'm really rich and privileged. I did that. I had that. Most of my friends and neighbors in Detroit don't have access to that, so I am privileged. But that's what it takes to do business in Detroit right now, and until we fix that, it's going to continue to be a problem. There are efforts to do it. There are nonprofit lenders, the cities in, the, in it. The challenge is, you, right, it's still fundamentally, the economics don't make sense. So if you just look at the numbers on paper, how do you get around this? What we're doing is a lot of the foundations of town have come together to create a program that allows you to get a mortgage through a traditional lender and then a low-interest construction loan through the foundations. That's brand new. There haven't been many loans like that closed yet. We're waiting to see if that's going to work. It's still only a $75,000 max loan. That's probably going to be really effective if you're buying one of the lesser bombed-out houses or maybe a smaller house. But if we're trying to save the ones in the historic districts like this, it's not going to be anywhere near enough. But still, I remind, just because Carl and I did X doesn't mean everybody's going to have to do X. Some people are really good at DIY. Some people can do the work themselves, and God bless them. I'm so glad. My father and mother would like, probably like to tease me about the fact that they sent me to college. And I managed to come out with fewer skills than they sent me in with. Like, I can barely wield a hammer. And yet I was like, I can rehab this house. I can totally put in electrical. No, that's going to be contractors. But thankfully, Detroit is the spirit of DIY. Detroiters know how to do it. And the thing I tell, remind them, though, as we get into that spirit is, as a daughter of the trades, as somebody who grew up in this, never forget the cost of foregone wages. You will pay for this one way or another. Either you're going to pay for it for a contractor or you're going to pay for it in time you're not earning. So make sure you know where that math works out. There's no right or wrong math on it, but make sure you do. You will pay for it one way or another. For me, I was better off earning and being at work than I was being at the house, either trying to do the work myself or trying to general it. A lot of people think that contractors are skeevy. They don't want to you know, uh, pay them anything. And I say pay the nice man or woman 
pay the nice man or woman, let them feed their families. Everybody's entitled to feed their family. Be a good client. Hire a good contractor that does good quality at a fair price and pay them so they can feed their families. That's what we do. That's how you build middle class. That's how you make sure that there are jobs that aren't just about going to colleges. We have to be willing to treat that kind of work as skilled labor, which I do. And so I have Colin Christian Garfield as our contractors, and I think they are the dream. I love them. They are friends and family. They still have keys to my house. They come and go as they please. Uh, We go to each other's houses for holidays because we were good clients and they were good contractors. They charged me. Most people I know try to get out of the general contractor's fee because they're like, I can general it myself. People, you cannot general it yourself. You cannot. I'm sorry. And so every contractor out there has just celebrated me because you cannot general it yourself with no experience. I paid $13,000 for the nice people to make sure my plumber and my heating guy were not screaming and killing each other and trying to run their wires in the same hole. They made sure that everybody showed up on time every morning for two and a half years. Never did I have a contractor not show up. They were always there making sure it was happening. And I'm sorry, $13,000 is a lot of money. And it's so much a peace of mind about knowing, you know, I'm still paying that. I'm going to pay that off. And that was worth every dime. So I'm just going to say it again. Find good contractors that you trust. Believe in them, trust them to do their work, believe that they are skilled labor, and let them feed their family. Just because you have a dream does not mean that they are entitled to your giving you your dream at a, at a rock bottom price. And that is an excavator's daughter talking. So I'm sorry. Like I, the, go the trades. The trades are good jobs. So treat them as such. Yes, long dark hair. <laughs> Right. So that's a great question. So how do you become a we, right? Because I, Detro- I refer to Detroit as a we, and I didn't for a long time. Um, before I wrote this book, I got called a lot for interviews uh, about Detroit because, right, I'm another journalist living in Detroit, and I was the worst interview ever, like the worst, because I would be like, well, I don't know, and I, I, I would say this and balance that out, and they, and uh, like I would never get quoted because they were like, ah, we don't even know what you're talking about, because I was so afraid of talking about Detroit or for Detroit. Writing this book, part of what you'll read, if you choose to read it, is there is a section in there where I have to grapple with this. Um, I knew that from the get-go that we wanted to stay and be a part of Detroit. So that was sort of in my mind. The question in my mind was, when did I get to claim Detroit status? When did I get to be a Detroiter? And there are still people in Detroit who would say, I am not entitled to Detroit status. I cannot claim it yet. You know, it's, it's a fluid thing. But in writing the book, you know, I was in a, a neighbor of my, you know, a house with, uh, in her backyard having a, a cocktail. And I'm talking to her about all of this and saying, I don't know, people are angry. Like, I know people are going to be angry at me. I don't know how to talk about this. I'm talking about something I don't have any right to. I'm talking about race and class and gentrification. And who am I to say anything about this as a girl from rural Colorado? And Victoria Katansky, who is like, she's just the real deal. Like, Victoria Katansky, she just, she'll cut you if you, you know, like, cross her wrong. And she's one of my best friends in Detroit. And she looks at me and she says, girl, I grew up in Delray. You know, I got this. Like, people still don't think I belong in Detroit because they don't think I'm Detroit. And I'm as Detroit as it gets. Like, I come from the real poor Detroit. She was like, the reason why we like you, why real Detroiters like you, is because you've come here and you just shut your mouth. 
She's like, you're here, you're living, you're rehabbing your house, you're living your life. You're not trying to take over. You're not telling us everything we need to do or how Detroit needs to be different. You're just here being a part of it and being cool and saying hi to your neighbors. I don't know. Gentrification is not about just don't be an asshole. But that's part of it. Gentrification is really about policy, uh, what we do in city council, what we do at the school district level, what we do at our community meetings. But there's a certain amount of just say hi. And so I quote a great poet, Marsha Music, in the book about her, her poem, Just Say Hi, the Gentrification Blues. And in Detroit, because the people who keep getting reflected back and covered in the media look like me, and yet most people who stayed are African-American and don't get any ink in the New York Times. They don't get any ink or sort of reminder that they stayed and kept it together or that they've got really successful businesses, um, that they feel invisible. And then you get people like, you know, coming from New York or other places who don't know how to say hi on the street because, right, it's not because they are racist or don't want to. But in New York, you don't say hi on the street because there's too many people. So we've created a way to sort of give people anonymity and privacy. We don't acknowledge each other. But in Detroit, then you come and everybody, there's a high on the street. It's a very small town. It's this, you're sitting on the porch. Hey, neighbor, what's going on? We sort of know everybody around us. And getting used to that sort of interaction can be very difficult. Coming from a small town and living in actually a small town in New York, like I lived in Red Hook, which was basically a tiny little town in the thumb of Brooklyn, um, with you know 10,000 people cut off by public transportation, we learn to just say hi and know our neighbors and be really, in, you know, really integrated together. And I think that's really been a part of it. I don't know how that plays out here in Denver. I don't think just say hi is the answer, but I think it's certainly a good portion of it, of acknowledging and knowing who's around us, knowing our neighbors and wanting to. If you want a life of anonymity, if you just want to live in a place and not know what's around you or who's around you, Detroit is not that place right now. New York is that place. Maybe Denver is becoming that place. It wasn't that place when I lived here. I lived in neighborhoods where we sat on Jen you know, Garner's porch and we said hi just off Colfax to every neighborhood around, a neighbor around, you know. That's what I've always come around with. And so I feel like that's been a part of my success at integrating into a community. But again, I also know just say hi and don't be a jerk isn't public policy. Um, so I'm still going, the long and short of that answer is I'm still, like, I've decided, Victoria gave me permission to claim my Detroiterness, and now I'm just trying every day to, to honor that Detroiter, to honor that badge and hope that I do right by Detroiters. Um, because I am, like, I'm fifth generation native to here. I'm the, you know, so I know all of my friends getting frustrated by newcomers here, and yet I'm the newcomer there. So part of my book is about being gentrified and gentrifier. On the one side, I am what you could call a gentrifier in New York, or in, sorry, in Detroit, but in the meantime, it's been hard on my family, you know, my dad and my brother and their rumbling, you know, trucks and muddy boots. This is not a place that feels comfortable for them anymore. Yeah. So the one thing I'm really disappointed in <coughs> that we have a we have a set of stairs that runs up the center of the house and we wound up the all the balusters were broken so we knew we were going to have to replace them. In doing that, we were convinced that we also had to replace um the handrail. 
because it needed it was cracked and broken. It wasn't particularly attractive, but it needed to be um, brought up to code because it, it was too low. And it was the one time that my contractors weren't involved. It was another contractor they brought in, and they bullied me. And I didn't want to be. I didn't want to be the girl. I didn't want to be difficult. And so I let them convince me that we should do an oak railing, even though the floor, when we uncovered the floor treads on the steps, it was actually a burled maple. And I wanted something that looked similar on the, on the banister. And he convinced me it was going to be fine. And because I'm a, I didn't know, and that's not my area, and so I trusted, I believed, and now I hate that banister. I hate it because I don't like the look of it, and I hate it because the banister I had that Nona Herzog used to trail her hand every day down every day as she came out of the bedroom and that I trailed my hand down every day during renovations is gone. Thankfully, my good contractors saved that, and it's going to be installed in the area that goes from our second floor up into the attic, so there will still be that piece. But that is the one time when, like, I didn't speak up for myself. I allowed myself to get bullied, and now I look at that every day, and I'm like, oh, curses. <laughs> in the back, plaid shirt? Oh, Saginaw, yeah. Yeah, Saginaw's an interesting place. So... I, so Saginaw is sort of a small town. So if you think of towns that are similar to Detroit, it's Saginaw, Flint, and Detroit are sort of often lumped together as places that were sort of auto towns, down and out. I don't know, honestly, what happens to Saginaw right now. Um, a lot There's a lot of energy in Detroit and a lot of excitement, but even that's still really nascent and could, you know, should the economy falter, what happens in Detroit? I don't know what happens to Saginaw because it's so further up. It doesn't have the same cachet. It doesn't have sort of something drawing development there, nor jobs. I... Saginaw is one that I don't understand what, how we do, and that's not a happy answer. I don't mean to give the bummer answer, but I don't honestly know. Flint was a really interesting case because until we started poisoning people, like, right, Michigan just decided to poison its kids. That's awesome. Thank you, Governor Snyder. Um, you know, we had lead poisoning in the water, but before that came out, there was a huge amount of new development coming. There was a huge amount of investment dollars. The university was really um, doubling down. There was this idea, if you were, you know, young, that maybe you could stay there. And now that the water has come out, and even though it's going to get better, like, we're going to fix it, that little bit of sort of nascent idea that we could stay, when I go up there and do reporting, people are like, that's gone now. So I don't know what happens in Flint and Saginaw, because I honestly don't know what happens in Detroit. We bought a house in Detroit with the intention of living there the way Detroit was. It wasn't some grand pie in the sky like, oh, Detroit will get better in 20 years and it'll all be worth it. Like, we loved Detroit we loved because we loved the people. But that's still a, you know, we still recognize the huge gamble that Detroit may stumble again. Every one of our neighbors who's been around for a while, those who came in the 70s will say, yeah, we remember when we were promised great redevelopment. And those who came 20 years later in the 90s are like, yeah, we remember when and like we were promised and then it fell back again. And now we here were that next phase of that. People talk and say they feel like it's different this time, but maybe it always feels different this time. We're hoping, we're believing, and I think that's maybe the key to Detroit is we keep hoping, we keep believing, Saginaw too, Flint as well. Like, we're so used to people 
saying the worst about us, we know how to get up and keep swinging every damn time we get knocked down. And the rest of the country and the other people may not get that, but I think that's the sign of a Detroiter, is that you just, you're a Detroiter because you are. You know, whether that means you actually get to stay in the city or where you, whether you're being a Detroiter from afar, there's still that sort of blue collar chip on your shoulder that says, I get up every damn time. Mr. Campbell. Speaking of um, giving tours in your new house, um, curious about, this might be a question for the previous homeowners, but have they seen what you've been doing and how have they kept up with what's been happening and is there any plans if they haven't seen it to uh, Allison, Fatima, would you like to answer that question? Um, we'd absolutely love to go back. Uh, I, I can't wait. I have been following Amy on her blog, and then, of course, now we're Facebook friends. So, you know, we keep up with all of the developments. And I have to say, I've just been, I, you know, I've said this to Amy on Facebook as well, but we bought the house with very similar dreams for very similar reasons. And we... We're also naive in our assumption that as, as a good middle-class couple with good credit, we could uh, get a loan. We paid cash for the house. We paid the back taxes off. We got some of it cleaned up, and then we went in to go get the loan, and uh, we couldn't get the financing. And, you know, to talk about that, that blue-collar sort of Detroiter hustle where you get up and keep swinging, we had to admit that we weren't willing to give up our 401Ks. So it was a huge relief for me spiritually when Carl and Amy came along because they were going to take that same sort of care. Did you saw <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, actually, I remember we, we were talking over Skype and, and they, they, the S is savior. That's right. <laughs> yeah. We, when, well, you know, when they told us their intentions to, uh, to put their 401ks behind it, we, we told them, don't, don't spend it on couples therapy instead. <laughs> but you know, but lucky for us and lucky for the neighborhood, um, they did get back up and swung, swinging every time and got creative about the financing. And thank you to everybody who's thrown in on that project. It has been super satisfying for me to have to have been a steward, even though we had only a short period of time to now see it come to fruition through Amy and Carl's efforts. So I can't wait to, to have seen it come back to life. And I have a question for you. Yeah. Um, with all the history that you've now done on the house, have you, did you find out who that child's handprint is on the cement block in the back? Yeah. No. So in, the, in our backyards, we have a, a long backyard. Yes. And there's this odd cement block, and it's got a child's handprint in it, but we I not, still don't know whose it was. Maybe it was a Herzog child along. There were so many Herzogs. <laughs> you know. um, are there any other questions? I want to know if yeah. you've done the garage. No. So there's a garage at the very back. It's like a dilapidated garage, holes through the roof. Uh, literally, there's no door. You have to use a screw gun to uh, pull the screws out and set aside the plywood to walk in. So we've been in it once. After we bought it, and we were like, oh, screw that back together. We'll deal with that another day. So that's definitely another day. Like, who knows what's in there? I think Jimmy Hoffa might be in there. <laughs> Anything's possible. Um, anybody else? Yeah. Yeah. One more. Oh, we have one more question. Yes. Has 
So, yeah, so Detroit does have great music history, whether you're talking about Motown or you're talking about the birthplace of techno um, right now. Sort of, you know, the, we've got great sort of rock and roll, uh, white stripes. So we do still have a lot of that. Um, it's very much ingrained in the city. I think they're figure, we're figuring out what is next musically. One of the things why Detroit was the home of techno is because we made music for the spaces we had available. So there's a reason why sort of Berlin and Detroit sort of have that connection. And we had these big giant warehouses and empty spaces. And so people were making music to fill that. And so that is sort of, we have a giant techno, the only techno museum in the, in the world is actually in Detroit. We've got the Motown Museum. Um, our local bar is PJ's Lager House, which is sort of this great rock and roll bar that's had everybody from from like blues greats to Jack White when he was first getting started. Uh, Meg White lives down the, the block from us. So, you know, it's still there. I don't know what the next version of that's going to be. Also, I hate to admit it, but unless it's a like an old juke joint, I'm not a live music person. So I don't get out to the shows as much to see it. But I think we're getting the signal that that was, has to be the last question. Thank you so much for all coming out. I hope that you'll read Detroit Hustle. I appreciate you all being here. That's all for tonight's Author on Tour. I'm Darren Foden. We have been podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore in Denver, Colorado. Stay pod-tuned in the coming weeks as we podcast Authors on Tour.